bitch, please. Oh, bitch, please, my ass. You want a sandwich? Dig that. Oh, hell yeah. She's a bad I'm a black man in a white world. I'm a black man in a white world. If I wasn't a Christian man, I'd probably be kicking in your ass. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the JB's Low Tech Pod. Today we'll be dealing with a very serious issue, but in sort of a humorous way. And I know you're going to ask, how the heck you did you do that? Well, you're about to find out here next, here on the JB's Low Tech Podcast. When you need someone to listen, a lawyer you know and trust. Congratulations to all the Minnesota businesses that scraped through the last year. It sure hasn't been easy, but we've done it together. And while we certainly need to move forward, it's good to reflect on what we've been through and the many losses. Here at Bradshaw and Bryant, we held a lot of Zoom meetings, increased our phone calls, and have done our best to keep up with all the changes while continuing to provide quality work. We'd like to thank everyone that turned to us with their personal injury and criminal needs, as well as the courtrooms for bringing the community back together to serve justice. We look forward to being part of Minnesota's growth and success for many years to come. I'm Mike Bryant from Bradshaw and Bryant. I hope you're never injured in a collision, but if you are, don't sign anything till you've talked to us. Find Bradshaw and Bryant, personal injury attorneys at minnesotapersonalinjury.com. Seeking justice for the injured, Bradshaw and Bryant. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the JB Low Tech Podcast. As I stated in my opening, today we would be touching on a really serious subject, but with a different twist. Today's guest is a comic, a writer, a friend to many, and a mentor to a lot. I want to thank Frank King for coming on. How you doing, Frank? I am good, my friend. I want you to know I'm giving up a nap for you, and that is an act of love. <laughs> yes, it is. Believe me, I understand that because I've been tired all week because I'm dealing with the death in the family. So, oh, well, I, I guess I, now I'm feeling really bad about myself. Uh, <laughs> no, you're fine. No, we're, we won't lay him to rest until next week, so. Ah, okay. Yep. Well, I'm sorry about the death in the family. So, sir, you are a comic by trade. And I was wondering, what got you into that uh, business? Into comedy? Yes, in comedy. I uh, told my first joke in the fourth grade. The students laughed. The teacher was hysterical. And I thought to myself, I'm going to be a stand-up comedian. And so I wanted to do it since I was in the fourth grade. Twelfth grade, they have a talent show every year. And this is 1975, and nobody had ever done stand-up. So... I did it, and I won. Of course, I beat the accordion player and the international folk dancers, and, you know, wasn't really a tough competition. And then I was going to go to L.A., and my mother said, no, you're going to college first. I don't care what you do when you get done. You can be a goat herder for all I care, but you will be a goat herder with a college degree. So I went to UNC Chapel Hill, got a couple of college degrees, and moved to San Diego with my wife's father's insurance company. And that was the beginning of the end of my insurance career because San Diego has a branch of the world-famous comedy store, the one up on right. Sunset, still there today in La Jolla <laughs> on Pearl Street, and same location. And I did my first open mic, and halfway through, I heard a voice inside my head that said, you're home. That was... April 1st, 1984, 
And then in December of 85, I figured I had enough uh, comedy chops to go out and do it professionally. And the comedy club boom had begun a few years before. Right. And I said to my girlfriend, now my wife of 35 years, I'm going on the road to be a stand-up comedian. Do you want to come along for the ride? Figure she'd go, oh, hell no. <laughs> and she said, yes. So we gave up our apartment and our jobs and put everything in storage. We couldn't fit into my tiny little Dodge Colt. And we were on the road for 2,629 nights in a row Ooh. nonstop. Seven years and change. Right. Worked with, and back then they put you up in three-bedroom condos, you know, three comics a week. So we worked with and lived with Foxworthy and Dennis Miller and, and Kevin James and Adam Sandler and Ella, Ellen and Rosie and Steve Harvey and and on and on. Back when they were just comics. Right. Did that for from 85 to 93. Got hired by a radio station in my old hometown of Raleigh, North Carolina to co-host a morning show. There's a trend in the mid-90s to hire comics to be sidekicks. And I took a number one morning show and I drove it to number six in 18 months and got fired. Uh, a friend of mine goes, you didn't just drive it in the ground. You drove that in the middle earth. And I did. There are two kinds of people on radio. People have been fired. People are going to be fired. Right. And by that time, the comedy club boom had busted. So since my act was very clean, I thought I'll do corporate comedy after dinner, after lunch. And... Turns out it pays a lot better. Somebody said to me, what's the difference between a club comic and a, and a uh, corporate comic? And the answer is $5,000 a day plus travel. Okay. So I'm no math major, but that <laughs> appealed to me. Mm -hmm. And I rode that wave until 2007, 2008, when the last recession hit. And bookings dropped off 80% practically overnight. And we lost everything we'd worked for in 25 years of marriage and a Chapter 7 bankruptcy. And that's when I learned what the barrel of my gun tasted like. Uh, spoiler alert, I did not pull the trigger. Right. <laughs> well, obviously. <laughs> yeah. A friend of mine came up to me after a keynote because I, I tell that story on all my keynotes. He goes, hey, man, I come you didn't pull the trigger. I go, hey, man, can you try to sound slightly less disappointed? <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> true. Yeah, that's, that's where the comedy comes in as a mental health comedian. Not jokes about suicide but just funny personal stories right anyway, anyway when the speaking business came back the meeting planner said to me frank we love you we just can't pay you five grand simply to be funny anymore you've got to teach the audience something and i thought what do i got to teach anybody and then i realized given my close brush with suicide living with two mental illnesses depression and chronic suicidal ideation and the fact they're more nuts in my family than a squirrel turd <laughs> that I could speak on suicide prevention if I got some training and certification. So I did. I trained several different curriculum on suicide prevention, began, began keynoting. And then the second hurdle was I've been a comic for two and a half decades. How do I convince anybody I can do something serious? And that's when I did my first, the first one of my seven TEDx talks on mental illness. And that convinced the world that I could do something deadly serious. Well, you, um, Obviously, have your chops, and I've um, was part of a morning radio show here in town for 22 years here, here in here in Minneapolis and St. Paul, um, and we would speak on speak with comics on Fridays, and then the, the guy branched branched out and uh, started his own uh, podcast with his family, and uh, I was lucky enough to be part of that for five years and. Again, it was Fridays, and we got to speak with comics. So don't worry. I won't break the number one rule and ask you to tell jokes on my show. So, Oh. <laughs> but, uh, well, you know, I got them if you want to hear them. But, uh... No. No, it's uh, – I've been told you'd never do that to a comic. So, But, no, yeah, I, I, I get the morning radio bit, and, um, you know, and I understand how that uh, – works and how that can you know you know you get you get hired to be fired because i was released once and <laughs> brought back on the same show because the show oh. the show was around for uh, 40 years i think it's going on now it's no, actually still going 
That's unusual. Yeah, there aren't many local morning shows anymore. Everything comes in by satellite. Right. No, this this show was so good at its time. We were the number one per capita number one morning radio show in the country. And so Whoa. somebody brought somebody brought in um oh why am I blanking his name? The famous morning show um personality uh howard stern and simulcast him five-year deal to simulcast him we beat him by ignoring him and the radio station paid him to go away in this market so oh really okay good call yeah our 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 pd and our head of our show just decided to ignore him instead of trying to get in a battle with him so uh probably a good idea right so and um, when you were at uh, UNC, what were your degrees? I have a degree in political science, because yeah. it's easy, and there are no correct answers. <laughs> as long as you can defend your position, you get a B. Right. And, and then I, labor management relations happened to be a, a major where there's some crossover classes between poli-sci and, and labor management relations. So I, I, for some strange reason, decided to double major. And I was a couple of classes away from a degree in economics, which I should have gone to summer school and picked up the degree in economics. If I had to do all over again, I would. Right. Well, you um, did you take the world-famous UNC course that everybody took for the EZA? Which was? <laughs> the African-American Studies course. Oh, my God. Oh, yes. And I, I, it had a different name, at least um, among my white fraternity brothers. Um Yes, it, it was famous for that. It was the it was the uh, you know easy course. Yeah, I I was um, I was also an athletic equipment manager, student manager for football, and I've worked uh, went on and worked other sports. But uh, one of my um, one of the people I worked under for a couple of years, a guy named Mike Ellis was a basketball manager there and he took the course himself. So I've heard yeah. about that course. So Yes. A lot <laughs> a lot of athletes and fraternity people, fraternity brothers of mine, took the course, yes. And I won't tell you what they called it because it's horrible. Yeah. But uh yeah, I mean I was in yeah, I should never have been in a fraternity, not especially not that one. Um <laughs> Yeah, it's it's yeah, it's ugly. But anyway, we all make mistakes when we're young. Right. So speaking of uh, being young, you you uh, speak about and, and I think write about the mental health history of your family. Uh, do you want to go in that a little bit? Sure. Uh, it's called Generational Depression and Suicide. My grandmother died by suicide. My mother found her. My great aunt died by suicide. My mother and I found her. I was four years old and I screamed for days. The uh, My mother got worried about my great aunt because of... Four or five years before, my grandmother had died by suicide, and and you know my great aunt was approaching about the same age, and that's about the time that the people in the town started to wind down mentally. So we drove over to her house, let ourselves in, and there was nothing out of place. So we got to the kitchen, and by the way, if you're easily triggered, uh, this this may raise some strong emotions, so you might want to go to the bathroom if you're listening right now. Come back in ninety seconds. Uh, the in the kitchen, all the food that should have been in the refrigerator was on the counter, the milk, the butter, the eggs, and the cheese. And it was an old Loctite refrigerator, no magnetic strip, just a handle. Mm-hmm. And if you crawled into the refrigerator, then there's no getting out. Right. And that's what my great aunt had done. She decided to end her life. She crawled in the refrigerator, pulled the tor- door to behind her, and then, as apparently... She at some point decided to, you know, she changed her mind and, and tried to claw her way out. Yeah. yeah. So when my mother reaches over to open the refrigerator door, not knowing what's going on, and I'm holding onto her skirt tail, my great aunt falls out of the refrigerator and pins me to the floor. Oh, and we're, we're face to face, and her face is frozen that last moment of horror. Uh, and like I said, I screamed for days and days and days. How does, so, how does one deal with that, with that image? Well, it, um, as luck would have it, 
I mean, nowadays the child would have gone immediately into therapy, right? And you know, to deal with the trauma. But back then, that wasn't you know, not my mother's generation's thing to have people young or old going into therapy. And so she prayed, she tried to make a deal with God that if He would let me forget it, that she would give up the you know ten years of her life and. And interestingly, her life expectancy as a woman of that age at that time was about 72 and she died at 62. So maybe that's the reason I forgot it because I didn't remember it until 2012 when I was telling my my cousin, I was repeating the myth that my mother created, which was if I ever asked about it, I was to be told that when my mom opened the door, my great aunt was sitting in the refrigerator with her hands folded, looking serene. Okay. And my cousin, who was 10 years older, when I recounted that story in 2012 to him, he goes, what? No way. No, the old bat fell out of the refrigerator and pinned you to the floor, and it all came rushing back. So that's when, that's when I began to think about doing a suicide prevention talk. Because I thought, you know, I've got the, I've got the history, I've got the close call with suicide, and 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 hardly any men talk about it unless you're a clinician, right? Because you know, big boys don't cry. That's the way I was raised. Which, by the way, is one of the reasons that eight out of ten suicides in the U.S. at this point are men, because you know, they don't reach out for help, right? Because that's not what men do. Uh, which is one of the reasons that two co-authors and I wrote a four book series on men's mental health is to help guys like that. It's there. It's an anthology series, meaning there's 12 stories, 12 guys in each book. Each one has a different issue and then how they're really coping with whatever issue it happens to be. And turns out mostly bought by women. We figured who have a man in their life. They just cannot figure out how to help. So they get the book and it's a manual. It's got resources and exercises, mm -hmm. and all kinds of uh, good advice. Plus the stories. So that, that's, yeah, it's nowadays called toxic masculinity, but I think big boys don't cry is far more uh, colorful and accurate. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think that's partly accurate too, because that, you know, that's all I heard, you know, don't cry, boys don't cry, men don't cry. And, yep. And, um, but all we did was then internalize it, and, <laughs> which leads to high blood pressure, heart attack. And suicide. So, you know, we die a slow death a different way. Um, yeah, it's, it's possible to die by suicide over time. And also, it's not just mental illness that men tend to ignore. It's I would have a number of friends and acquaintances who have died of either colon cancer or prostate cancer. And both of those are eminently treatable if you are on top of it and have right. your, you know, every 10-year colonoscopy mm -hmm. and have your PSA blood test done for your prostate every year. It, you know, if it turns up it's cancerous and you catch it early, it's, you know, it's not a death sentence. But men, you know, yeah, I haven't been to the doctor in 20 years. Right. I never get sick yeah, until you do. And then it's too late. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I went to the doctor and they made me sick is what you hear. From it's like yeah. no, you were sick before you got there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you just you just didn't know it because you ignored all the signs. No, I yes, I, I'm lucky. Back in 2005, I did not ignore the signs, and I was having uh, reflux issues, and my doctor at the time could not get them to calm down. Now, what they found had nothing to do with the reflux, but. <clears throat> Because he wouldn't give up, and I didn't give up. They found a growing tumor on the outside of my stomach wall. Oh, hello. <laughs> yeah, it, which would have never been found until probably too late. But since I was kind of pushy and he was very receptive, we had, you know, the scans and things done that detected it purely by accident, but... It was because I was not afraid to go to the doctor. So, Yes, and I have a number of chronic illnesses. Uh, my mother gave me uh, the cholesterol of a deep fat fryer. <laughs> and my dad gave me a bad heart valve, which I had replaced twice. And so that plus the mental health issues, I'm you know, seeing doctors uh, once or twice a year. So somebody's always looking under the hood. Right. 
So it's yeah, I think I think that's if there's a silver lining to any kind of chronic illness, it's that you know, like I said, somebody's looking under the hood once or twice a year just to make sure, you know, you don't have a tumor on the outside of your stomach. It just turns up and you know, in some other test. Well, uh, Frank, if you don't mind, I'm going to bounce back and forth in your story. Sure. And, um, so y- you have this beginning of, uh, of uh, relatives killing themselves, and then you go on through high school. How did you make it through high school and college with all that going on? Uh, you know, uh, I didn't know anything about it because I had forgotten about my great aunts. Right. I, I don't I don't think I think I was aware of my my grandmother died by suicide, but I didn't get didn't get a lot of details because that wasn't something that my mother's generation in the family talked about. And I loved high school. I almost stayed an extra year. Uh, back then, you could stay an extra year. I wanted to take a typing class, some more Spanish. Mm-hmm. I sucked at, at trigonometry. I wanted to go through trig again before I left for college. Uh, I didn't get. I got depressed in college, although I didn't realize it was depression because my high school girlfriend had gone cross country to University of Arizona to go to college. Mm-hmm. And so I just thought I was lonely. Right. You know? uh, probably was depressed. And then married my high school sweetheart, which was a mistake. She's a wonderful woman. We had no business getting married. But, you know, if they say opposite to track, she was pregnant and I wasn't. So. Then my first thoughts of suicide were several years later when I realized I was married and miserable, even though she's a wonderful woman, selling insurance for her dad's company. Great right. business, but I hated it. And because my first wife didn't like the idea of me doing stand-up, I wasn't going to open mic night. And I did a TEDx on this called Suicide, the Secret of My Success, Dead Man Talking, because I realized if I didn't start pursuing comedy, I was going to kill myself. My second thought was, well, wait a minute. I could divorce my wife, quit my job, try comedy. If it works, great. If it doesn't, hell, I can always kill myself. So I got in, that's how I got into comedy. I, I got into comedy with nothing to lose because if I stayed put, I would have killed myself sooner rather than later. Well, so as you're going along and you, you're building your, your comedy life after a failed marriage, how did you get to a point that you wound up on the tonight show and how did that go that night oh actually i applied a dozen times to do stand-up on the tonight show and even though i was writing jokes for leno for the monologue i never made it off the night (laughs) show it seemed kind of unfair but you know uh i wrote i wrote jokes for leno for 20 years for the monologue okay but i never uh, I got turned down a dozen times by Leno and Letterman and Conan, and three or four times by um, Last Comic Standing, twice by America's Got Talent. Um, the best I ever did was I did the old star search with Ed McMahon. I was a quarter finalist, and then I lost to a puppet. <laughs> well, I've heard many other comics lose on star search <laughs> to other, other strange acts. I think yes. Sinbad and Dave Chappelle both did. <laughs> yeah, and Sinbad actually turned his second place finish into uh, a career. Uh, he did very well. And right. Rosie O'Donnell, I think, was she got uh, blown out, and she, of course, turned it into a good career. Matter of fact, I just saw her acting. It's a TV show. Oh, the new one, the new American Gigolo on Showtime. Yes. She plays a cop. Yeah, she did very well. So it's, you know, don't have to win it necessarily to benefit from it. Sinbad was a great self-promoter. He was famous because among comics, because he's having trouble getting booked. And so what he did was he created a character, a Jewish New York agent representing him, who was actually Sinbad doing an impression of a Jewish New York agent. Because <laughs> easier to sell your, it's easier for somebody else to sell you than sell yourself. Right. So he would he got himself booked by playing this agent uh, famously. A good a good mind for business, obviously. Right. And Steve Harvey was never a great comic. He was a great salesman. He could take mediocre material and he could sell the heck out of it. 
and he had a head for business. Right. So that's why he's now in industry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's a he's a brand all to himself now. So- yeah, see, uh, actually saved me an ass kicking once. Um, we were working together in Birmingham. We went to the YMCA to play basketball together, and um, I'm about to get in a fight with one of the locals on the court who kept hacking me. And Steve's standing there with two of the guy's friends, one on either side of him. <clears throat> they start to step out on the court, and Steve goes, uh, gentlemen, look, I don't like Frank much either, but we came here together. So if you get involved in this fight, then I got to get involved in this fight, and it's not going to end well. And they step back. So, <laughs> so. And we both got thrown out of, the, out of the YMCA, but he did save me from getting my butt kicked. <laughs> I can imagine it laughs. You two, you two share over that one. Uh, yeah, who, he's a, he's he's quite the business person, right? Who um, who were your comedy influences as a youth? Um, you know, back in the day, um, I watched the Night Show quite a bit mm-hmm. uh, in college, <laughs> and uh, David Brenner was big back then on the night show. Yes. Uh, Michael Keaton. Yeah. Was a comic. Uh, did a couple of tonight show appearances. Um, Robert Klein, but I had all the albums growing up. I listened to Cosby and Pryor and Cheech and Chong and memorized their acts, you know, and, and performed them for, um, you know, other neighborhood kids, nothing like a little, little class. You know, white guy, white kid doing <laughs> Richard Pryor's material. Right. <laughs> yeah, it was it was uh, it was probably something to behold. Probably the same today. Those same kids doing Dave Chappelle's material. Um, yeah. But I I do re- I do remember um, Keaton doing comedy on the Tonight Show, and he was kind of spastic. <laughs> yes. He was. Kinda, yes. He was kind of all over the place. As was he in his first couple of acting when he played Mr. Mom and right. he played um, oh, with Henry Winkler in Night Shift. Yep. It's one of my favorite movies. We're not pimps. We're love brokers. <laughs> um, yeah. Billy Blaze Jowski is the name of the character. Yeah. I, I In terms of careers, that, that was, a, I thought, man, if I could do, be a comic and then to go into acting. And then there was a guy who sadly killed himself. Um, he was the host of the Family Feud. Ray. Oh, I know who you're talking about. Dominant. Yeah, blonde, kind of sandy blonde hair. Yeah. Because um, he was a warm-up comic act. He was a warm-up comedian for talk shows, <clears throat> which is something still on my bucket list to this day. I want to be a warm-up comic for for talk shows or sitcoms or whatever. Um, Ray. Oh, it'll come to me. Anyway, he did the warm-up act and then the benefit of doing that is you're meeting producers and directors and showrunners and actors and it was a Carson whatever show he's on was a Carson production and so Johnny somebody said this guy's funny and so Johnny saw him and had him come on this night show and he did really well and then from there he ended up becoming the host of of Family Feud I do believe after Richard Dawson burned out yeah and and then I, I think that may have ended, and he hanged himself, as I recall. Uh, so he, but I, he was an idol for a while, you know, but then when he ended up at the end of a rope, I thought, you know, uh, probably not a good role model. <laughs> no. <laughs> Ray Combs. Yes, Ray Combs. that's his name. Again, not a great comic. No. He was very pedestrian, but he was a good, he hustled, and he, I'm sure he worked, networked at the, when he was, doing the warm-ups so so have you had the opportunity to be in any tv shows or movies or anything like that i have a screen actors guild card uh, i've had for 40 years and i've only used it for the dental insurance um <laughs> i tell my friends who are still working in hollywood look i just want one line in one sag feature so that i can say that i use my sag card mm-hmm. my screen actors guild card for something besides the dental insurance <laughs> Uh, I did all the I did all the comedy shows back in the last century, where Showtime Comedy Club Network and Comedy on the Road, and I did um, like the Star, excuse me, Star Search, the Evening at the Improv, back in the day. I must say, however, that I have done comedy recently in a comedy club, 
there's a series on YouTube called Dry Bar Comedy. Yes. Been around about 10 years. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, there's Club Clean, right. Corporate Clean Comedy, and Provo, Utah Clean Comedy. And it's actually a bar where they don't serve any alcohol, dry bar. And I mean, it has to be so clean it squeaks. No innuendo, no double entendre. You know, I mean, it really has to be. And they they generally were using Christian comics, but they were running out. Right. And so they had to start booking clean heathens. <laughs> and that's when I got the call and I submitted a tape. And, and uh, it's... Uh, it was fun. It's a great club. They treated us really well, and, and my my special posted in August, and 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 did has done very well. So I'm, I'm I, and I was, you know I hadn't done comedy in a club in eighteen twenty years, and so it's fun to go back and and do it again. Yeah, I've had the, uh, I guess I would say honor to uh, interview other dry bar comics. Like uh, Jeremy Nunez, and <laughs> there was someone else that I've interviewed for my podcast that done dry bar. And you, you're right; it's a hundred percent clean. So, oh yes, and, yeah. and it's a great production. I just uh, when I saw what they'd done, they had a great MC. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> he warmed up the crowd. He said, "Let's practice clapping. Let's practice standing, practice standing ovation." And they take a break between the second and third comic and I was headlining okay. and I thought, man, I, oh man, you know, cause a, um, an intermission can kill a comedy show because it's all about building the right. energy. Yeah. And, but the, the MC came back out and he fired him back up again and they had four or five cameras. So great camera work. And it was so cute. One of the guys that was on the show with me out of Chicago, his name is Indian, East Indian, Indian. And his name is Ragu. That's his real name, not spelled like the sauce, but there's yeah. an H in there. Uh, anyway, he called me and he goes, Frank, I'm watching my, my, my finished product, and I, I don't remember the, some of those jokes getting that many laughs. And I said, Ragu, it's called sweetening. <laughs> they, they take laughs from that night, so it sounds the same. Right. And they, they sweeten where they think it's appropriate to, you know, to sweeten the uh, laughter for the audience. So, and I noticed mine as well. There are a couple of spots where I, I, I did okay, but you know, it got much more laughter than I recall. Well, so. let me ask you this about dry bar. And I've asked the other two gentlemen, uh, is it harder to work clean or harder to work dirty? Oh no, it's, it's much harder to work clean. A dirty jokes just occur to me just pop into my head i'm just you know i'm mean dirty material it clean comedy takes a whole lot more effort um the i've got a five minute bit on youtube if you type in frank king and deer hunting on youtube you'll find one of my most requested bits five minute bit on deer hunting and it took me a couple of days to write it clean. There are probably half a dozen comics doing the same premise, but see, buck is such a great rhyming word <laughs> that yes. I had to write around that. Okay. And so, <laughs> a dirty jokes, I mean, and mean jokes, I'm on Carnival working, doing comedy. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> it's in the morning. I'm headed to the Lido for my first cup of coffee, Lido Buffet. And there's a kid coming toward me, a young man, probably in his late teens, and he's three feet tall, three feet wide, roughly 300 pounds. And he's carrying a tray back when they had lunch trays, that kind of thing, on ships. And it's just piled high with the breakfast. I mean, there's all kinds of food. There's, you know, there's muffins and, and honey buns and eggs and bacon <laughs> and one set of silverware. I can see from where I'm, you know, where he's standing and I'm coming at. And he's wearing a sweatshirt that says WWJD. What would Jesus do? And the joke <laughs> popped into my head. I didn't even have to try. When I read WWJD, what would Jesus do? He would have a salad. <laughs> uh, yeah, so dirty, mean jokes just pop into my head. Okay. Clean ones take some work. Right. And here's the dirty little secret about clean comedy. When I left the clubs, and we talked about this, I said, you know, what's the difference between a club comic and a corporate comic? $5,000 a day plus travel. Because HR will pay a lot of money, not so much to tear the roof off, but to make sure nobody gets offended. Right. Even back then, 
even before the whole woke, you know, and whatever. I mean, back then, meeting planner would say to me, we're paying you $5,000 for 45 minutes of jokes, just jokes. And I said, you're not paying me for the 45 minutes of jokes I tell. Right. You're paying me for the 45 minutes of jokes I don't tell. <laughs> you're paying me, so when I get done with my job, you still have a job. Correct. And that resonates. Yeah, because everybody had a good time, and nobody's got their shorts in a bunch. And... Yes, and the same thing works on cruises. They don't care if you tear the roof off the place, as right. long as you're generally funny, and nobody got. To, there's no line outside the cruise director's office the next morning. So, uh, doing your comedy uh, journey, have you ever had that night where nothing worked, and you were oh, just yeah. sitting there? I mean. Unfortunately, I was on the other end of that. Me and some buddies had just played a softball game, and we went to a local bar here in town. And uh, didn't know it, but we were walking into a comedy night. When we were all fired up, it was like, hey, now we get to laugh, too? This is going to be great. And the whole, you know, the the host and the, the first comic all was building up this guy, and this guy comes out, and it was nothing. And I mean, just nothing. People kind of looked at each other, maybe a chuckle here and there. And then one of the guys in my group started to heckle him. And I was like, dude, no, don't do that. And he continued and continued. I mean, have you ever had an experience like that? Yes. Uh, Ambler, Pennsylvania was one night when that happened. Uh, and then South Beloit, Illinois. One of the reasons in South Beloit was I was standing in the middle of the dance floor. So I was having to, in the bar, the tables were uh, circled the dance floor. So it was like theater in the round. Mm -hmm. And all the speakers, logically, faced the dance floor. So pointed at me, not at the audience. So it was difficult to hear. Okay. Plus, they hadn't announced that they're having a comedy night. So all these people are getting drunk and on the dance floor, you know, grinding on each other. And then the record stops. It's comedy night. What? <laughs> yeah. So it was just, you know, it was, it was there. You can do comedy anywhere, but there are places where you shouldn't and times right. when you should. So, yeah, I was, I mean, I've done, I've done 45 minutes to complete stone silence. Uh, an acquaintance of mine came here who was said out loud to the audience about halfway through a show like that, look, you're looking at me like a geek and I'm looking at you guys like a car payment. <laughs> and you have to do the time or you don't get paid. Right. So you just march, you just put it on autopilot and march through the, it's kind of like doing a Zoom comedy show because people say, how can you do comedy on Zoom? Because I've done, I've done shows where they forgot to advertise or didn't advertise. Seats 300, I got six people. So I'm essentially doing a show to furniture. Right. So Zoom is a piece of cake after that. Yeah, I um, had a close tie with Acme. I don't know if you've ever heard of Acme Comedy Club in, in Minneapolis. Yes, and, absolutely. Um, know the owner. Not. I'm not going to say I'm a friend of Lewis's, but I know Lewis. And uh, the people that run it under him, I know so I I go every once in a while, and um, they always seem to have good acts. But you you always you, know, you the audience is just as nervous as the comic is, in my my yes. eyes, because they want to no. laugh. They want you to succeed generally. Now Carnival Late Show. On Carnival, the comics do two and three shows a night. They do a couple of family shows and a late show, and the next night they do one family show, two late shows. And at the late shows, it is full-on, you know, comedy club. They tell you, MC comes out and says, if you're easily offended, get the F out now. Right. And they come for a verbal fist fight. <laughs> and I've got friends in L.A. who won't work that run from L.A. down the Mexican Riviera and back. Because they, they're just unnerved by the, you know, those crowds. You have to, you have to be able to take a punch and counter. And so I, I didn't have any problem. I'm going to be doing it forever, and, and I, I'm, I'm usually pretty good at handling hecklers. But some of my friends, you know, who don't really interact with the audience at all, didn't want to have anything to do with it. So. So how do you get hooked into? Because when we first started talking to each other to have you on. 
my podcast, you were going on a cruise run. And how do one one get hooked into cruises? Well, for me, it was a kind of a networking thing. A friend of mine, a female comic in the clubs years ago. It was, it was tough. You know, you're traveling in a, it's like living in a fraternity house, working with all these guy comics and comedy on the road's hard enough. And she wanted to make the jump to corporate comedy, which I'd already done. And so a friend, a mutual friend of ours called, said, would you help Jan get into corporate comedy? I said, sure. So I helped her get into corporate comedy. And then one summer, for some reason, I wasn't, didn't have a lot of work. And I said to her, I think I'm going to have to go back to selling insurance. And she goes, no, you're not. <laughs> she goes, I've got a cruise agent. I know for a fact there's a showcase where they bring in the talent coordinators from the cruise lines next Friday. And somebody's dropped out. And if you call her and say you'll fly to Atlanta, put yourself up, you can probably get the showcase. So I did. I flew myself to Atlanta. And and it was um, the everybody who was showcasing went over their time except for two people and i was last and the longer it goes the more difficult it is for the whoever's closing the show mm-hmm. and i almost left several times my wife encouraged me though just stick it out just go up do your thing so it started at seven i got on at 11 wow yeah and i was so fired up i got a standing ovation because the energy I... <laughs> yes, you were wound up. Yeah, and so I got some work on, on Holland America. Um, and then my agent was able to give me some on Carnival and a little Royal Caribbean, you know, some of the other cruise lines. And then most recently, you know, the cruise thing crashed during the pandemic. Yes. And a friend of mine, it, and so I just stopped working cruises. And a friend of mine, somebody I met on Holland America, who became a cruise director on Holland America had gotten hired away by a, a new cruise line in based in Italy. And they, and they are coming. They want to come over to the U S they want to dominate the U S market. They got two ships here. Now they're going to add two ships a year until they're dominating. And he said, Hey man, you want to go back on the ocean? I go, sure. So he said, all right, you're on. So I did four weeks this past summer and I'll probably, I don't do it from September to May because that's conference season. And I make so much more money doing keynotes but right. in the summertime and over holidays when i'm not you know conventioning it's great fill-in work and you know it's a luxury cruise ship the gym steps away you know that i'm on the keto diet and there's protein everywhere and so it's it's and i can get a lot of work done because i just lock myself in my cabin and work on stuff i never have time for on shore so it's 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 relaxing i catch up i you know i pump up and uh so that's i i enjoy it in in that for those reasons. And I do a lot of crowd work. I bring the house lights halfway up, come out, do five or 10 minutes, stand up, convince them I'm funny. And then I go to the audience. Hey, anybody here besides me ever had open heart surgery? And I've got 25 minutes of comedy on cardio. So whatever they say, I've got a joke for it. Right. Well, with doing that and that type of, you know, yes, they're a captured audience, but still they want to laugh. Do you dare with, the woke generation now this end venture to college campuses? Uh, not for comedy. <laughs> okay. No. Uh, I have a college agent. Mm-hmm. And back in the day, back in the late 80s, I did, through National Association of Campus Activities, NACA, I did about 100 colleges doing stand-up. Well, there are two tracks. There's an entertainment track where they got jugglers and comedians and magicians and bands, and they have a speaker track. And so now I'm on the speaker track. It pays better. And I was on the campus University of Montana Billings. Two nice young men uh, driving me around town to do radio interviews because the event, the keynote was open to the public. So trying to get people from the, you know, the general public to come. And they asked me, you know, Frank, you're a comedian. You're coming on campus. Are you worried? And I said, well, if I was doing comedy, I would be concerned. I would be very careful. Yeah. But I'm. I'm on, you know, not to offend anybody, step on anybody's toes. I said, boys, I'm on campus to talk about suicide prevention. Three college students a day kill themselves in the U.S. So I, I don't give a rat's ass if anybody gets offended. That's not my problem. I'm not here 
you know, if you get your feelings hurt, I am sorry, but I'm here to save lives. Thank you. Right. That's the benefit of being a speaker over a comedian is they're paying you for that, for, you know, to be honest and, and forthright and talk about things that people don't talk about out loud in an effort to save lives. So as you're, you know, again, as I call it, going through your comedy journey, what, and maybe you mentioned it before, if you did, it's not that I'm not paying attention. I've <laughs> got a lot of things going on. Uh, what triggered uh, your suicide episodes or attempts? Uh, well, it was only one attempt. The uh, you know the first episode was when I realized if I didn't do stand-up, I was going to kill myself, which made a great TEDx talk. Right. And the second time was the bankruptcy. Um, you know, I, I'm... One of the one of the three legs of the three-legged stool of suicidality is something called burdensomeness. You feel like you're a burden to your family and to the rest of the world, and they'd be better off without you. And we just filed bankruptcy, and I had a million dollars in life insurance. And I thought, and my, it was, you know, it was really my wife was crushed, and it was her pain was was affecting me. And I thought, well, I can fix this. I mean, she'll be broken-hearted, but if I kill myself, she won't be broke. She'll have a million dollars. Right. I felt like a burden. So that was what I was going to kill myself for the money. But unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how I look at it, my policy had a two-year suicide clause. If you kill yourself in the first 24 months, they pay nothing. If you wait after 24 months, they pay a million. And it turned out I'd only had the policy for 22 months. <laughs> yeah. So I had to wait 60 days to kill myself, which is why we're having this conversation at yeah. this moment. You, you never know what keeps somebody around, but... Yeah, my, my life insurance policy saved my life. Ironic, yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, it is, it is a life insurance policy. Insurance policy, yeah, and it <laughs> right. definitely insured my life. Continued. Uh, so, how did you... How did, you, did you ever get help? How did you get help? No, I've never had uh, therapy. I, I am on medication... Okay. Uh, when I hit, I was taking an over-the-counter supplement called SAMe S A M E. Yes. You buy it at Costco. Mm -hmm. It's good on three things: joints, your liver, and mild depression, and no side effects. And so I took that for from 1995 until I turned 60. My wife said, "Ask the doctor. Maybe you can prescribe something an antidepressant." So I did, and he prescribed a, an antidepressant. It worked. Um, my wife noticed a change in my personality in about two weeks, and I noticed in three weeks. Oh man, well, why did I wait so long to take these pills? It doesn't make me giddy, but it just takes the edge off. Right. Uh, so I didn't get diagnosed until I started working on the two books or the four book series with the women on men's mental health. They, I describe my symptoms, and they go, "Frank, you have major depressive disorder and chronic suicidal ideation." I didn't know any of that until I started working with them. And chronic suicidal ideation is relatively rare. It means for me and people like me, the option of suicide is always on the menu as a solution for problems large and small. And I tell the audience, when I say small, my car broke down a couple of years ago. I had three thoughts unbidden. One, get it fixed. Two, buy a new one. Three, I could just kill myself. <clears throat> That's it's just a coping mechanism, the way my brain works. Right. And the upside of telling that story out loud every time I speak Almost every time since 2014 that I've spoken, there's been somebody in the audience who has that. They do not know it has a name. They think they're just some kind of freak and completely alone. Had a young woman come up after my college presentation, said, thanks for your keynote. I said, you're welcome. She, she said, but I got to tell you, it made me weep. I said, how did it make you weep? She goes, you know your story about the car, get it fixed, buy a new and kill yourself? I go, yes. She goes, I've been having those thoughts all my life. I didn't know it had a name. I just thought I was some kind of freak and completely alone. And when I heard you say that out loud, that you had it, I realized for the first time in my life, I'm not alone. And I wept. Hello. Yeah. That's the very therapeutic for me to be able to help people like that. It's, it's, it's strange you, to hear you speak about this because I have the, the exact opposite gene, which is I've gone through bankruptcy. I've gone through, uh, I've been divorced, um, been a single dad and all these things and my only thought every day was 
how do I stay alive? How do I stay alive? How do I, it's, ne- it's never, I never want to die. I never want to die. So I, I, I don't know if there's a name for that survival or well, whatever, but. Yeah, it's, uh, and that is a good thing. Um, you know, it's, it's, um, I have a number of friends who have speakers who have imposter syndrome where they, you know, they are good, but they don't believe it. They think somebody's going to figure out they're really not that good. They're going to take everything away. Right. And I have the reverse, which I call reverse imposter syndrome. I know that I am fabulous. I'm just waiting for everybody to figure that out. My personal tagline is often mistaken, never in doubt. <laughs> That's a, some people would say you're narcissistic, but uh, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, well, the, the mistaken part, you know, narcissists are never mistaken. It's always somebody else's fault. Right. Um, yes, yeah, so that's why I included that. Yeah, I'm often mistaken, but I'm never in doubt. <laughs> so what do you consider? Your, do you consider yourself a mental health worker, a counselor? A what, what do you consider yourself when it comes to mental health? Just a public speaker. Uh, you know, it's not therapy. I'm not a clinician. I just, I'm just sharing my lived experience and uh, a trainer, suicide prevention trainer. Okay. I have several certifications that and I've got a couple of train the trainer certifications where I can train people to do what I do. Well, is uh, one of my mentors would say, "God bless you." Yeah, that's a, <laughs> I get that a lot. <laughs> so, well, and I did a back in the day, in 2003, I did a comedy show called Bananas. Mm-hmm. It was a Christian comedy show, and again, they didn't do their market research. The 26 weeks in the first season, there were only like 36 Christian comics. So by the, by the first couple of weeks of the second season, they're like, oh, dear Lord, we're, we've run out of comics. So again, they put out the call for happy heathens. <laughs> Anybody who has 60 minutes of clean material, and that's, that's a tall order, 60 yes. minutes of clean material. Mm-hmm. So the guy who helped me, uh, Taylor Mason, a ventriloquist, gave my name. They called <laughs> me up. I said, yeah, I got, I got 60 minutes. I'm sorry. Every time I hear the word the word ventriloquist, one other word pops in my head, and it's from you guys, a prop comedy. Yeah. Oh yeah. Very much so. <laughs> yep. Continue. I'm sorry. That's all right. That's um. So they called me up, and I said, "Sure, I'd be happy to do it." So I went, and Taylor warned me because it's a Christian comedy show. They will give you the opportunity. They'll ask you if you want to testify, you know, give your Christian testimony. Well, I'm an atheist. So, yeah. So, thankfully, Taylor warned me. So, when they said, Frank, would you like to, you know, testify, give your testimony? I said, look, here's the deal. If you can get me a blanket grant of immunity, I will tell you anything you would like to hear. And they laughed, and that's the last time they brought it up. (laughs) It's pretty exciting. Very good answer there, Slick. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You give me a grant of immunity and make a blanket, I'll tell you whatever you want to hear. Well, in our uh, not to be too heavy here, but in our last few minutes together, I really appreciate you giving up your nap and being with me today. I did, man. That is an act of love, I got to tell you. <laughs> yes, it is. Uh, and I didn't say it wasn't. So. Well, and let me tell you something, uh, John. Um, I laid down for my nap. Mm-hmm. I had my eye, eye patches on. I was getting ready to start my little MP3 guided meditation, and a little voice in my head said, "I think you've got something at the top of the hour." <laughs> Thank God. So, <laughs> yeah, I looked at my iPhone. And I thought, "Oh yeah, John's calling at noon." So what I did was, I turned the notification audio, you know, the the thing that actually so the phone rings, mm-hmm. and I, I made sure the uh, focus, you know, the do not disturb was not on. And I lay back down in the bed with my iPad, you know, my eye mask on. I'm thinking, well, you know, if he calls, great. If he doesn't, I'll get a nap. And then, of course, <laughs> ring yeah, again. Yeah, of course, I called. Yeah, I yes. was a few minutes late, but I called. <laughs> yeah, I thought I was going to get a nap, man. I thought, well, listen, I'm here. You know, I if you can't, can't, I mean, if he calls, I'm here. So, so in, in our closing moments, uh, is there more you would like to say on the subject of suicide? Yes. Uh, eight out of ten people who are suicidal are ambivalent. They can't make up their mind. Eight out of ten. Nine out of ten give hints in the last week leading up 
to an attempt, which means the vast majority of people want to be saved. Mm -hmm. The vast majority of people can be saved. Right. Um, so whoever's listening, you can make a difference. You can save a life and you can do it by doing something as simple as we're doing right here. And that is starting a conversation. Yeah. Paying attention. Just yes. To the signs and symptoms. Right. And uh, are there classic signs yes. and symptoms? Depression, um, eat too much candy, sleep too much, can't sleep, uh, have trouble getting out of bed in the morning but rallying in the afternoon, uh, let their personal hygiene go. If they're normally pretty well put together and then you keep seeing them and their hair's a little dirty, clothes aren't quite so clean, and maybe they're having trouble dragging themselves out of bed in the morning to run a little wash, take a shower. Um, signs they may be thinking about suicide. They talk about death and dying. You catch them Googling death and dying. If they're an artist of some kind, death and dying appears as a theme in their artwork, their music, their writing. They're getting their affairs in order, especially if they're giving away prized possessions because they want to make sure they go to the person they want them to go to when they're gone. Gathering the means, buying a firearm, stockpiling medication. And here's one that's counterintuitive, very dangerous. <clears throat> They've been depressed forever and now they're happy for no reason. Well, the reason may be they've chosen time, place, and method, and they know the pain is coming to an end because suicide is not so much about wanting to kill yourself as it is about wanting to end the pain. Right. Well, as you, as you spoke to all of that, um, the theme from MASH popped. The yes, one suicide line, is painless. painless. Yeah. <laughs> one Brings line. Brings so many changes. Yeah. Popped in my yep. head. So... Yeah, people say to me, like when when um, Naomi Judd died by suicide, they said, why would somebody who's got everything to live for want to kill themselves? And I said, chances are she did not want to kill herself. Most people don't. She just probably wanted to end the pain. Right. So that would be my parting message. Yeah, I mean, and pain comes in many different, when people hear pain, they, they think of body aches. But pain comes in many different forms, heartache. Uh, yes, heartache. And my pain when I'm depressed is is the mental pain, but also there is a physical, you know, physical element. Uh, like somebody's got their hand wrapped around my heart and squeezed really hard. Right. So there is, I mean, it's, it's you know, it's undoubtedly my imagination. I'm just interpreting it that way, but that's the way it feels. Well... So when you get to that point, and some, if you're somebody who notices that, what should they do beyond getting the person to talk? Well, first, if you, if you think they're depressed, you need to ask them if, they have a, if they've been having thoughts of suicide. Just say, are you having thoughts of suicide? Just like that. And if you can't ask that, find somebody you can. And if they say yes, then you say, do you have a plan? And if they have a plan... You say, what is the plan? And if the plan is detail, time, place, and method, you want to get them to a uh, mental health facility as quickly as possible, or at the very least, on the phone with the Suicide Prevention Lifeline, you dial 988. Or if they're younger, the text line, you text the word HELP to 741-741. And if they won't pick up the phone, you pick up the phone, and the volunteer at 988 will do their best to talk the phone into the hand of the person who's in crisis. If they're suicidal but don't have a plan or it's not really well formed, I would say, well, are you going to kill yourself? And if they say yes, then I say uh, no. If they say no, I'm not going to kill myself. Then I would say, okay, tell me why not. Make them give voice to whatever's keeping them here because something is keeping them here. Otherwise, you wouldn't be having the conversation. So my penultimate question is um, – why comedy and suicide? Why oh, do you mix well, the two? because, um, well, for me, both are in my DNA. Okay. Um, the whole family's funny and crazy. <laughs> uh, and and the, um, if you have to tell somebody something serious, like talk about suicide, and after you do a serious piece, you give them some comic relief, their brain is much more receptive to the next piece of of serious business. So they call it comic relief for a reason. You know, I, I make them and, and I try to make them laugh and make them cry and make them laugh, make them cry because they often won't remember what you said, but they will remember how you made them feel. Right. Impact is far more 
if you can elicit emotion from whoever's listening to you speak. So, a woman said to me uh, recently, uh, you made me laugh twice and cry once. I said, well, my work is done. Yeah. As a um, former uh, rival coach of University of North Carolina, Jimmy Valvano once said, a full day is when you laugh, when you cry, and you... Uh, and you uh, have all your, you know, all your emotions in one day. So I guess, if, Frank, if you can bring people to do that, you're doing a hell of a job. That is correct. And I worked with Krzyzewski once. He was the motivational speaker for the Durham Bulls banquet. I was the comedian. We sat next to each other. We chatted. Mm-hmm. And he's one of those people when he's talking to you, he's, I mean, he's really focused on you. He's, he's like, there's nobody else in the room. So let's fast forward 10 years okay. from that day. Right. I'm at the luggage carousel in San Diego. I just got home. I'm waiting for my bag. And I look over at the other carousel. There's Mike. Right. Now, obviously, I know who he is. So I said, hey, Mike. This is 10 years later. He turns to me. We spent an hour together. He turns to me and he goes, Frank, how's it been? (laughs) Oh, man, that is is impressive. Yeah, well, that's why those people like him are leaders and and low-bit salesmen because they know they have to remember people. Yep. Anyway, I got to run because I got another Zoom at the top okay. of the hour, and I, I you know, I, and I missed my nap time. Thanks to you. <laughs> I'm sorry again. I'm That's sorry. Okay. That's all right, man. Well, real quick, can you tell people how they can reach you? Yes, they can. Um, they can go to the mental health comedian, or as we say down south, the mental health comedian, and if they want to. Listen to my first book, our first book on men's mental health. They put an email address in. They could download the unabridged MP3 for free. And all my contact stuff is at the middle, or just type the mental health comedian into your Google search. You'll find me. I'm all, I mean, I'm, I do a pretty good job with the SEO. Well, um, with that, I'm going to let you go and let you continue your great work. And I really appreciate you and appreciate you even more for giving up your nap. So thanks. Oh, yeah, man. I'm telling you, I wouldn't do that for just anybody. <laughs> well, thank you, Frank, and have a great weekend. Thanks, man. All right. See ya. When you need someone to live, a lawyer you know and trust. Congratulations to all the Minnesota businesses that scraped through the last year. It sure hasn't been easy, but we've done it together. And while we certainly need to move forward, it's good to reflect on what we've been through and the many losses. Here at Bradshaw and Bryant, we held a lot of Zoom meetings, increased our phone calls, and have done our best to keep up with all the changes while continuing to provide quality work. We'd like to thank everyone that turned to us with their personal injury and criminal needs, as well as the courtrooms for bringing the community back together to serve justice. We look forward to being part of Minnesota's growth and success for many years to come. I'm Mike Bryant from Bradshaw and Bryant. I hope you're never injured in a collision, but if you are, don't sign anything till you've talked to us. Find Bradshaw and Bryant, personal injury attorneys at minnesotapersonalinjury.com. Seeking justice for the injured, Bradshaw and Bryant. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the JB's Low Tech Podcast. I want to thank the guy from the 858 that's uh, somewhere in California, Frank King, for being today's guest, for the humor and the introspection. Had a really great time with Frank here today. And I really appreciate Please recall the things he told and taught us today about stepping in and helping somebody and being a lifesaver. Helping those who may need help to steer them clear away from suicide and getting help for their uh, mental health pain. It's a big issue in this country. We're not handling it well. Unfortunately, in some cases, we got some people who are chosen 
leaders, per se, who have mental health issues that are running this country that is not help, helping. Also, I want to thank my sponsor, Mike Bryant. If you live in Minnesota and you need help, Mike Bryant and Bradshaw and Bryant is a person to reach out to. And if you don't live in Minnesota, I think you can still contact Mike and he will tell you who to reach out to in your area because I think he belongs to a network of attorneys throughout the country who can help you. So again, Mike, Thanks a lot, and thanks for the support. Uh, again, to my listeners, on the many different, uh, I've been told that I can be found on many different uh, broadcasts or podcast outlets, so continue to listen and tell a friend. And you can reach me at jb780 at comcast.net, and that's J-A-Y-B-E-E-7-8-0 at comcast.net. I know this was a really deep and touchy subject, but I know you're all big girls and boys and you can handle it. And I want to thank you a lot. Next week's guest is planned and I'm happy to have him. And that's all the more I'll say. And thanks again for listening here on the JB's Low Tech Podcast. JB is my name and f***ing up motherfuckers is my game. Negro, black, African-American, black, black, black. Django, J.B. Damn, Dolomite. Great God in heaven, you know J.B. Our great Negro sex machine.